0: It's easy to miss the ultimate fate of the lost. It's easy for it to escape your notice that God is a God of justice. Forget this social justice movement of our day that is nothing more than Marxism. I'm talking about true biblical justice, and it never, ever escapes the notice of God Almighty.
1: Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures. Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Broge is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl will conclude his sermon titled, When Money Talks. We have seen that James is dealing with the subject of possessions and how we should relate to things with a godly perspective. Let's join Pastor Carl in James chapter
0: 5. In this context, James is teaching that there is a time of future judgment when their gold and silver will be as worthless as rusted iron. And he uses this term, the last days. That's a term every Christian should know. The last days, according to Acts 2, began on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, when that miracle happened, we studied it some weeks back, where they spoke all these different languages, real languages that they had never learned before, and not just the languages, but the dialects, Peter stood up and he said, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. And so as we will come to this fifth chapter, we're going to see that James, like all the New Testament writers, speaks of the imminent return of Christ, that is, Christ could come back today. Nothing has ever needed to take place prophetically for Jesus to come back. He could come back today. His return is imminent. Now, the second coming, when he comes back to the earth and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, that is a prophetically driven event. All kinds of prophecy are yet to be fulfilled. I was doing a funeral on Tuesday, and I reminded them of an individual who said to me, I I, I wish we lived in biblical times. And I said to that gentleman, we are living in biblical times. We are seeing prophecy in our lifetime being fulfilled. The end of time prophecy that will drive the second coming will be like the days of Noah, days of ongoing violence, lawlessness, sexual immorality, and the days of Lot, days of sexual perversion, transgenderism, and homosexuality. And the super sign that God gives in Scripture is He would gather the Jews at the end of time before the second coming of Messiah back into Israel. God is at work, and you almost have to be blind if you know your Bible even a little bit. Christ could come at any moment, and that's why I would say that we are in the last of the last days. But understand he is writing about the rich man so that the saved man would not have the same kind of attitude, that we might be careful to protect our hearts, that our testimony might be good and pleasing to the Lord. Now, that's the folly of stagnant wealth. Secondly, on your outline, the outcry of sinful wealth. The outcry of sinful wealth. Notice verse 4 here in this chapter. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. James now moves on from hoarding wealth to getting wealth the wrong way. The wicked rich were not only guilty of hoarding, but they were also guilty of sinfully acquiring their wealth. They were guilty of defrauding the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. Now, remember, back in Bible times in Israel, there was no labor unions, no labor laws, no one to protect you. And many times, if you had a bad boss, you just took it on the chin. So here is this rich landowner and this poor man who needs a place to work, and he has no place to work, but this rich man who will hire him. And of course, in that day, you would be paid on a daily basis. And so this man who had mowed the rich man's field, and the tense of the verb is, it was completed, meaning he had done what he was asked to do. He had completed his work, and yet the text says here, his pay was withheld. Maybe the landowner made up some kind of technicality. Well, you got here late, or you didn't work quite hard enough. I didn't see enough sweat on your brow. I don't like the exact way you plowed those furrows or I'm just not going to pay you today. And please understand, if this man was not paid, it was a great hardship. And again, this is how it took place. And that's why Jesus can tell a parable in Matthew 20. Most of you know this parable. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last group to the first. Jesus said in this parable, because at this time in history, payday was not someday payday was every day. And it was necessary for your survival to buy the food, to sustain the family. Put out in your margin next to this verse, Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15. Let me read to you what Moses said. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it become sin in you. Or listen to Leviticus nineteen thirteen: You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You know, when I was 11 years old, I spent... Two weeks cleaning up this man's yard, trimming the trees, all the hedges, cutting the lawn, weeding all the, the beds, and it was time for payday. He said, We'll come back tomorrow. And he put me off for two weeks. And in the heart of an 11 year old boy, it certainly was not an issue of survival like the people in James' day, but I felt maybe just an inkling of what these folks were feeling. And let me say parenthetically, I am embarrassed as a pastor when I hear of a born-again Christian who has not paid a debt that they owe. And of course, that's why leadership in the church must be qualified. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, that is, with unbelievers. That's why when we look for leaders in the church, elders, deacons, whatever form of leadership, we want to make sure their testimony in terms of Paying debts is pure. It's a terrible thing when we lose our testimony over money. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. So he's describing the rich man who hires these laborers who've completed their work, but they have not been paid. It has been withheld. That's a sad thing. He is cheating these people. He is ripping these people off. He is defrauding them. By the way, this same truth is underscored in Romans 13 and verse 8. There the apostle Paul says, owe nothing to anyone. Now, let me say parenthetically, while debt is certainly discouraged in Scripture, if you've taken my financial course, and those who are interested, it's not for the weary. It's like 130 pages long at searchthescriptures.org. Uh, sometimes people use Romans 13 and verse 8 as a proof text to say you should never take a loan, you should never take a mortgage, a church should never go into a building program. Well, we know all building, all borrowing is not wrong. How do we know that? Because God said in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 12 that if Israel obeyed Him, He would make them the lender rather than the borrower. So, God doesn't bless them to do sin. He only blesses them for obedient action. And so, when Paul says, owe nothing to anyone, he uses a tense of a verb that means, don't keep on owing a debt that should be paid. And contextually, of course, he's dealing with a man's taxes. You owe your tax to the government, pay it. You owe it to them because the government, whether it's the police or army, are God's ministers to protect us from evil. And people can rank on the police in our day and talk down cops, but I tell you, we don't want to live in a county where the police are not honored. I was at a stoplight the other day, and I saw this police officer. It was late at night. I was coming home about 10 o'clock, and I rolled down my window, and I kind of waved, and she rolled down her window, and I said, thank you for what you do. We need you." And a big smile came across her face. We pay our taxes because the principal role of government is to protect us, whether it's through the army or through the police. But owe oh, nothing to anyone. And let me say while we're here, getting wealth through other wrong means is also displeasing to the Lord. Even if you tithe the profit, And so, if you're in the ungodly liquor business, whether through a convenience store or a bar room, and you're helping to make people high, woe to you who makes your neighbor drunk. That's what God says. Woe to you who makes your neighbor drunk. It's one of the woes God puts in Scripture. Look, you can illegitimately attain money through gambling. Or through the porn industry, people have become billionaires by selling perversion. And that is a wicked thing. But if you are an employer, you are to give an adequate wage. I always want to err on the side of being generous with the people who work under me. I don't want them to feel ripped off. I look at every dollar that is given to this church is hard-earned, sweat, blood, money. I don't want to waste 15 cents of it. But neither do I want to be guilty of giving people a proper compensation. Some people read this text, well, I've never ripped off the first national bank. I must be okay. But we can be unfair with people when we need to be generous. Verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out. The pay of the laborers cries out. It's the Greek word krazo. It's used in one passage where Jesus casts out a demon, and the demon comes out shrieking, crying out. Then it came out shrieking, same verb as James uses, in convulsing him violently. It's used in Matthew 27, 33, of the multitudes who asked for Christ's crucifixion. Why, what evil has he done, Pilate asked, but they kept crying out, shouting crucify him. And the verb is used when you want to emphasize a cry and hear the cry of these laborers who have been ripped off. It's reaching the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, just like the blood of Abel reached into the ears of God. Our God is the Lord of Sabaoth or Sabbath, if you want to say it The word sabioth is a Greek word that we don't really translate so much, but we just transliterate. We take the sound and put it into English. But the thought is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. One of these days, God's mighty armies are going to come back, and he is going to make every right, every wrong right, and the unbelieving world is going to stand in judgment before him. So James is condemning the man who hoards, and the man who defrauds. Now quickly, and will be finished, the doom of selfish wealth. Beyond the folly of stagnant wealth and the doom and the outcry of sinful wealth, there's the doom of selfish wealth. Stagnant wealth, sinful wealth, selfish wealth. Look at verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts In a day of slaughter. Now, remember, again, he's describing the unbelieving rich and he's making application to first century believers and by extension, all of us. These were people who were hoarding, who were ripping people off. They were engaged in self indulgence, and you see it both in their wantonness and their wickedness. Notice, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. We don't use wanton so much today. What does that really mean? It means luxuriously. It means for your own pleasure. One translation says, You have led a life of luxury and self indulgence. We might paraphrase it You've lived high off the hog. You've lived like a pig. You've squandered it all when some of it could have been used for others. Again, he's describing a person who is only living to gratify himself. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. It's a frightening picture. There were rich pigs. And they were fattening their greedy hearts for a coming day of judgment. Now, remember, who is he writing to? The first verse, I spent a whole sermon on it. To the 12 tribes who were scattered. The diaspora, they were scattered like seed. Why were they scattered? Because of persecution. Because Jews had embraced Jesus as Lord, and they were run off from their homes. And they were scattered throughout Israel and through the empire. And now think about it. Here are these Jews, these diaspora, living in different cities who are going to read this letter. And there are all these rich people who are ripping off these Jewish believers. And it seems like they're on the wrong side. You know, I mean, we've been thrown out of our homeland and our own houses, and now we're not being paid. Like, where are you, Lord? What's going on? Jeremiah had that feeling within, he records in Jeremiah 12, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them and they have taken root, they grow and they bear fruit. You're always on the lips, on their lips, but far from their hearts. Job struggles with the same issue. He asks the same question. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? Asaph, the psalmist, asks the question. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And it's natural to wonder why does God seem so gracious and merciful to people whose hearts are hard and stubborn stubborn in in evil. God repeatedly through scripture says, You must take the long view. Whether it's James or Jeremiah or Job or Jesus. It's easy to miss the ultimate fate of the lost. It's easy for it to escape your notice that God is a God of justice. Forget this social justice movement of our day that is nothing more than Marxism. I'm talking about true biblical justice and it never ever escapes the notice of God Almighty. These self-promoting, self-indulging, self-centered, unrepentant, wicked rich people we're going to meet God. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, led a life of wanton pleasure, but you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Yes, their money was talking. It looked like they were getting away with it, but their money was actually speaking against them. It was condemning them. Verse 6, you have condemned and put to death a righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, in this case, the wealthy often had political power in the first century. Think about it. They controlled the courts. We already saw that in James chapter 2. He asked the rhetorical question, is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Yes, it is. They could easily pay people off. They could easily bribe folks. And so when you had your case in court, you were rich, you typically won. And in some cases, you were executed. He uses this word put to death. It's the word for murder. There was different kinds of murder in the first century. There was certainly judicial murder where you could go to court, be found guilty, and you were executed. Or you could be found right for your wicked behavior, and that man who had put in an honest 12-hour day was not paid. He gave you the best of his strength. He was either not paid or underpaid, and he began to get weak and sick, and so he died prematurely. But that's what people will do sometimes for money. They'll do anything to increase the almighty buck. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Three applications as we close off our time. Three timeless lessons. Number one, God is concerned with our attitude towards riches. God is concerned about our attitude towards riches. This passage deals not so much with actual wealth, but the attitude towards that wealth. And some people may be sitting here today, Pastor, you did a good job. Go get those rich people. And I fear maybe you've missed the point that James has. Remember, most of the folks in the early church were not rich, not many mighty, not many noble. That was the exception, 1 Corinthians 1 indicates. And really, it's the exception today where you visit the body of Christ in different countries of the world. Most of those folks are not rich. In fact, the median household in the median annual household income as of last year worldwide is $9,733. In America, though, it's $43,585. So you can say, well, he's not talking about me, I'm not rich. And our brothers and sisters in Christ and other parts of the world say, you don't know how rich you are. So we need to ask ourselves, am I selfish with what I have, or am I using it for the kingdom and the glory of God? The problem, sadly, with some of us, though, is that if God has blessed us with good things, we're covered over in guilt. But don't forget what we studied in James 1.17. Every good and perfect thing bestowed, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. One of the reasons America is so great and prosperous and wealthy is because we acknowledge God as a nation. And God blessed us because we led in carrying the gospel of His Son for 150 years across the planet. But now we have no need for God. And we are calling good evil and evil good. We're calling little boys, little girls, and little girls, little boys. We've got an upside-down, depraved, reprobate mind. And we're spending money we don't have. And if the Bank of America was right last week, we are headed towards hyperinflation. I'm telling you, sooner or later, the whole thing's going to crumble. But if God has given you something, If he gave it to you, listen to these words, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Oh, you know, I'm a big shot because I have so much. Don't be conceited. What you have, you know, and I always warn our young people when we bring them to countries, I said, it's going to be easy for you to be conceited. You're going to see poverty like you've never seen it. Don't be conceited. He speaks of the uncertainty of riches because someday it's all going to burn. But we're to fix our hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Hey, look, if God gave you something, you don't have to apologize for it. you know, I got this on sale. It was such a deal. didn't matter if you got it on sale. If God didn't want you to have it, it didn't matter if you got it on sale. But if God wanted you to have it, enjoy it to the hilt because he blessed you with it. Proverbs says do not worry yourself to gain wealth cease from your consideration of it when you set your eyes on it it is gone for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens secondly god is not only concerned with our attitudes towards riches god is concerned with our investment in eternity with our investment in eternity james is reminding us really how life is so temporal look how do you measure your success by how much money you make, by the title you have, by the fame you've acquired, by the car you drive, by the security of your retirement fund. I mean, what will it mean if Christ doesn't come and you live to be an old man or woman and you're rocking on that front porch? What will it mean that you have lived a life of significance? I can tell you it won't be the way the world measures it. But if you've laid up treasure in heaven, it will mean something. The saying is true. You've never seen a hearse pull in a U-Haul. You can't take it with it. You, how much did he leave? He left it all. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can lay up treasure in heaven. And that's what the Lord admonishes us to do. Jesus said in Luke 16 in verse 9, I say to you, make friends for yourself by the means of the mammon of unrighteousness. So you can say worldly riches that when it fails, because sooner or later it will, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You remember that, the parable of the unrighteous steward? And Jesus spoke of this unrighteous steward and how he made all these temporal friends so that when he lost his job, they would embrace him. And Jesus said, I want you to be shrewd like that dude, but in a different way. I want you to use unrighteous mammon to make eternal friends that when you step into heaven, there'll be a welcoming committee there because of the way you used your money for the kingdom of God lay up treasure in heaven. And let me just say parenthetically, in the 43 years I've been in ministry, I've seen some people who have been passionate. They study the Word of God. They pray for God's work, for their family. They're raising their kids for Christ. They're giving to the work of the Lord. They're sharing their faith. And then somewhere along the line, they go cold. And they are described like the people in Laodicea, where Jesus said, they said, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. But in reality, Jesus said, you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And you know what I've learned by observation? That for many of those people, the point of departure is they stopped giving to the work of the Lord. Oh, they just skipped a tithe one week and then it became two weeks. Then it became a month. You know, we say it in the political realm, follow the money true in the spiritual realm. And many times, the point of departure deals with the issue of money. Finally, God is concerned with the unjust acts of the unsaved. He's concerned with the unjust acts of the unsaved. He illustrates here with the unrighteous rich… And it reminds us that every unrighteous act that the lost man commits will be brought into account someday if he doesn't receive Christ. Now, please don't misunderstand the text. No one will ever go to hell because he's rich. The only reason he goes to hell is because he's an unbeliever. And in the case of the rich person, it's most of the time because his riches possess him and he doesn't really possess his riches. And God doesn't care if you're rich or you're poor. If you've never received Christ, you're just as lost. And your greatest need, my greatest need, is to be rich within, which is why Paul says, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. For just a moment, forget your bank account, forget your home, forget your cars, forget all that you have. And take account of your soul. If Christ came in the next 10 seconds, do you know that he would take you? You can never earn that righteousness. The gift of God is eternal life, but you can receive it if you will yield to him as Lord and Savior. Now, our Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that you have given us to study on this Lord's Day. Thank you for those who've come who have a heart to hear, who are hungry, not clock watchers, but those who are hungry to learn truth and to apply it. So help us to do some personal inventory this week about what you've entrusted to us if we know you. And for those who've never met you, help them to know that Christ died for them, that he bled and took all the punishment for their sin. That if they will call upon the resurrected Lord in faith, he will give them the gift of eternal life and they will never be the same. We love you, our Father, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As Pastor Carl points out, God
1: is concerned with our attitude towards riches, our investments in eternity, and the unjust acts of the unsaved. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 877- 787 7478 and requesting program James 012. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. Join us next week as we continue to Search the Scriptures.